0: Welcome to the How of Car Washing, the podcast that helps the car wash owner, operator, and manager address the challenges and opportunities associated with building and running automated car washes in today's fast paced environment. And now, here are your hosts, David Begin and Henry Lopez.
1: Welcome to this episode of the How of Car Washing. My guest today is Brad Mavis, who is the principal of Supplement in Irvine, California. And we were fortunate to hear, Brad, if you were went to the uh, excellent summit that the International Car Wash Association puts on in June in San Diego, we gave a talk, uh, which gave us some information about the uh, mergers and acquisitions market, especially in the car washing industry. And I wanted to bring him on to uh, to give a little bit more information on that. And Brad is, is the principal of that organization. Uh, he's got an MBA from UC Irvine. Uh, he graduated top 10% of his class, which... We got to talk about that, Brad, because I graduated in the bottom ten percent of my class. So <laughs> equally equally yoked here. But um, he's got an undergraduate degree in economics from the George Washington University in Washington D.C. And he's held roles as an equity analyst and a management consultant. Um, he's well published. He's an international speaker, and he spoke at many different um, many different uh, organizations. Um, he's also been a speaker at Auto Mechanica. For those of you who are familiar with Auto Mechanica in Europe, he's, uh, well-traveled. He's traveled to 15 different countries. He speaks Spanish. He's lived in Chile and Mexico. And in his organization, he provides strategic and financial advisory services to the automotive aftermarket industry. And he specializes in mergers and acquisitions. And he also outsourced corporate finance and CFO functions and, um, been featured in a lot of different magazines. And uh, prior to founding his company, he spent uh, nearly two decades in collision repair. So that's kind of his background and his family's background. I'll get him to talk about that a little bit uh, a little bit, in more detail later on. But Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you being with us.
0: Oh, it's absolutely a pleasure, David. This is an, an absolutely an honor to, to to be part of this podcast. And I've listened to a couple episodes previously. So it's, uh, it's pretty neat to be on the, the other side of the curtain.
1: Well, terrific. We appreciate that. So you've got a background in automotive. So first of all, I want to talk about automotive aftermarket. We, in the car wash industry, we get lumped in, and I didn't realize this until I heard your presentation, and I now use this quite a bit. So thanks. But the uh, car washing from a financial viewpoint, so when when financial analysts and the equity markets are looking at car washing, professional car washing, it gets lumped into this category called automotive aftermarket. Do you want to kind of explain why it gets lumped into that, what that market is, and what are the reasons why car washing is part of that?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, the automotive aftermarket, it's a very broad industry category, but but you're right. It, the car wash gets lumped into there. And really, the automotive aftermarket, it, the way I define it is anything from the dealership forward. So, so once that, that vehicle leaves the, the dealership lot, it, it is now serviced uh, in the aftermarket, and that may include uh, mechanical service, that may include collision repair, tires, and brakes, and maintenance. And and I think everybody listening to this podcast will really agree that that car wash and 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 the exterior ma- and interior maintenance of a vehicle is a pretty critical component of that that after sale service. So. Um, you know, that's really what the aftermarket uh, consists of, you know, and that's contrasted with with really the OEM market, which is everything leading up to the manufacturing of that vehicle. So the OEM, the, the tier one suppliers and the tier two suppliers and OEM manufacturers who are really constructing the vehicle at a uh, uh, manufacturing level. So um, that that dealership point is where uh, for me personally, where, where that dividing line between aftermarket and, and OEM lies.
1: Okay. Okay. So that even includes like building of parts aftermarket. I'm used to the term aftermarket parts, where you could have a company who builds parts for a vehicle after a certain amount of time. Uh, all of that gets included in automotive aftermarket.
0: Yeah. In fact, yeah, I was just out at SEMA, the SEMA Apex show, and in Las Vegas a couple of weeks ago, and and that's really a show dedicated to the aftermarket. And, and if you've if you've never been to to SEMA or or Apex. Uh, highly recommend taking a, a couple of days, to go out to Vegas and, and walking the the halls of, of SEMA, just to get a sense for how large this aftermarket is. Uh, it, it's, I mean, it's quite impressive to to see the show and to see all the different companies that that go into this this segment. In fact, uh, Bill Long, he's uh, uh, he's the chairman of of one of the larger uh, automotive aftermarket uh, uh, public relations companies out there. Uh, very often points out that the the uh, that the automobile aftermarket is one of the largest if not the largest employers industry employers in this country so it's a it, it's a critical part of our the fabric of our country the you know the fabric of our of our of our economic vitality and and it's something that that even for me until, you know, growing up in the industry, I never had a, a really a full grasp on, but but as I've uh, become more involved in more the the investment and strategic side of the industry, I've, I've, I've really appreciated just how influential uh, our industry is. And, and oftentimes, I, I think when we're within our own little silos and our own little niches, uh, sometimes we feel a little uh, like, like, you know, we're just a small little part of the industry. But when you look at the entire fabric, we're we're a very influential part of of, of this country's history and economy.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. And our car wash employees find the same thing when we bring them to like the car wash show, which we'll have in Las Vegas next year. And when they go to the car wash show and they realize how big the industry is, it makes them feel part of something much larger. And if you don't get out of your car wash or get out of your neighborhood or your city to see all these other, you realize you're part of a much bigger industry and when you add automotive aftermarket to that, it's even much larger. But that's, they, I've heard great things about SEMA as a show, and I need to take an opportunity to get get to that sometime.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, and that's actually you know kind of you know segueing the conversation a little bit. But that's actually how I got involved into to doing what I'm doing was was you know for for years I, I worked for uh, a family business in, in collision repair, and and again you could feel very small and isolated in that business. Uh, but I always made it a point to get out of the business. So I heard, you know, you've probably heard the phrase before work on the business rather than in the business. Mm-hmm. And, and the more I got out of the business, the, the larger I saw that the, 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 the entire industry was. And, you know, that was really the uh, the beginning of me shifting from running a family business to owning and operating the company that's focused more on, on strategic advisory within the industry.
1: Yeah. So you're, you're, uh, you're, 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 Parents were involved in the aftermarket, uh, the auto collision business. I I guess, and then you grew up. You actually literally grew up in that business.
0: Yeah, literally grew up in it. Um, and, and I and there's pictures hidden on my website uh, that that show me uh, as a kid working on on the shop floor. And and so uh, I, I had the great opportunity to to grow up in in the family. Uh, of a of a small business entrepreneur and and I, I learned about business from my very early days in, in high school uh, I worked the summer vacations and winter vacations uh, at the shop and, and my father never wanted me to be part of of the business I don't think uh, I think he did a lot to try and dissuade me uh, from being in the business and and, and show me how uh, tough of a business it was and, and, and how uh, you know, the long hours and the, and, and the, and the, customer demands and, you know, uncomfortable working environment and the very blue nature, blue collar nature of the industry. And, and so he didn't hide any of that from me. And, and in fact, one of my first jobs was, uh, in the shop. He said, okay, well fine. Uh, if you don't have a job and at the time I, I didn't have a summer job. So he's like, well, you can come to work with me. Uh, we're going to put you, my first, my first job was washing cars. That was the first time okay. I had to wash cars every, you know, every single car that, that, that we fixed. I had the wash cars, and and that was kind of the the entry point for for the shop. And then the second summer, I said, okay, well, I got pretty good at washing cars, um, you know, with with a glove and a chamois and, and, and a vacuum. Uh, I said, what's next? It's okay, well, we're going to put you in the in, in the paint prep department. I said, okay, what's that mean? Always uh, well, says, "Well, I'm going to put you with uh, uh, with Big Mike over here." And he teach <laughs> "You know, he, he, <laughs> Big Mike was like the six, you know, six foot six, you know, tall white guy, uh, the only white guy in the shop." Uh, and he's like, "He's going to teach you how to, to sand the car." And he, uh, they had a an old beat up pickup truck, and it was rusted out, and there was a tailgate that was full of rust. And my job for the next couple of weeks was to sand that tailgate, and there was until there was no more rust left on it. And no, we're in Southern California, so there's, there's not a lot of rust in Southern California. But for, right. for those of you who who are in different parts of the country, you know how you know how rust could just crow the car. And I remember sanding this thing for days upon days upon days. And I would go to Big Mike and say, Mike, am I done? He'd be, he's nope. There's still a little bit of rust right there, and I'd sand and sand and sand and. And, you know, for whatever reason, you know, I, I kept coming back, um, you know, and, you know, I, I guess, you know, at some point my father just said, well, I guess if he's going to keep coming back, we might as well you know, keep getting jobs to do. Yeah. So, but I think that's part of, you know, being a you know, a, a son of an entrepreneur, you kind of have that uh, tenacity that uh, <laughs> you don't know when to give up sometimes.
1: Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we don't learn these lessons. I mean, we don't give our kids opportunities to learn those type of lessons anymore. We want to make it easy on them and, you know I'm probably just as guilty of that as a father not giving my kid an opportunity to you know take take something and you know work at it till it's supposed to be perfect but what what uh what did that teach you i mean and you had a great great background so you had a parents who were entrepreneurs and you got to be involved in a small business so what did that particular experience teach you and then what were two or three interesting lessons you learned as kind of being part of that small business cuz most of our listeners are entrepreneurs and small business owners, and it, they always like to hear the stories when people kind of grow up in the industry or learn the lessons.
0: Yeah. Well, so, you, you know, I think my biggest learning point is actually when I uh, got my MBA. So, you know, I got my undergraduate in national economics and, and from George Washington University in DC and, and was actually supposed to go, you know, you know, they train you to be a diplomat there and uh, train you to go to work for the state department. And I passed the foreign service written exam, and, and was taking uh, the the face to face you know interview exam, and and you know frankly you know the, the foreign service exam is notoriously difficult, uh, and it has a reputation for being a very difficult test, and and I go through this interview when when I'm you know 21 years old, fresh out of college, and, and I realized very quickly that that a, a a young man with an entrepreneurial background, you know, in automotive and in big government doesn't necessarily mix very well. Right. And I saw that right. pretty I saw that pretty quickly. My interviewers by the way saw it very quickly as well. Um, so, you know, that didn't work out. But, you know, so then for a couple of years I, I worked in the shop and didn't, you know, really by accident, uh, you know, thinking would this was just a an in between point until I got a quote unquote real job. And and before I knew it, you know, seven or eight years go by and, and I look up one day and say, Well, you know, I guess if I'm gonna get a real job I should, you know, get a, a higher education. So I got my, you know, so I signed up for, you know, I applied to, to business school and uh, uh, got to UC Irvine in Southern California here. And I realized very quickly that that over the past couple of years, I, you know, I'd been running a business. I was responsible for hiring people. I was responsible for firing people. I was responsible for, uh, you know, scheduling and setting up processes and procedures and, and everything that goes into to running a business. And I hadn't thought much of it because I just did it and i had a a, a great mentor in my father who who gave me a lot of runway to uh to learn and experiment and, and frankly and sometimes fail on my own and so i got into business school and frankly i was quite nervous and quite intimidated going in thinking that you know i'm going to be surrounded by all these 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 people with these you know who've worked for these great corporations with all this you know, amazing name brand experience, and they're going to have all these experiences that I've never been exposed to. And very quickly, I realized it was actually the exact opposite. And that by running a business and having to make the tough decisions and having to uh, deal with uh, harassment claims or bruised egos or whatever the, the, the problem of the day was... That I received a a very powerful hands-on uh, education on on how to to run the day- to- day of a business. and and so, when I was in business school, I saw firsthand that while my cohorts had great corporate experience and 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 great exposure, that their experience was actually was very narrow mm-hmm. by definition. you know it, it was you know very much they they were given a task by the corporation and and they got good at that task, mm-hmm. uh, whereas i you know I, I had a very general you know a true general management experience, and and that was really powerful to see. Uh, to see how running a small business that the you know the intelligence and the experience and the know how that you gained running that business that that was uh, that was eye opening for me, and and uh, you know it really changed how I perceived the industry, how I, you know, and even how I perceive small business and entrepreneurship in the process. Right.
1: Good, good. You know, I think that's a fantastic experience. And it did give you probably a perspective that others who probably just went went through their traditional college MBA, worked at a, you know, worked at an investment bank firm or, you know, somewhere other place that might not have actually ran a small business. It gave you a, a perspective that, that they certainly didn't have.
0: You know, I was I was in in New York last week, and and I was presenting to uh, uh, an investment bank called Nomura, and they're a big Japanese investment bank. And um, you know, we were talking about trends in the automotive aftermarket, and, and you know, they had about twenty five different investors in the room uh, at that point. And and after the lunch, uh, me and, and one of the the investors uh, were, were, were just chatting, and and uh, you yeah, know, I made the comment to him, I was like, you know. The 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 one thing you know that I bring to the table is that I could literally sit down and talk shop with any of my clients. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could get down and talk business and immediately make that connection. Uh, you know, whereas the other folks in the room, brilliant from a business mind, um, you, you know, but they also. Um, the experiences of an entrepreneur, whether you're running a, you know, a, a million dollar business or a hundred million dollar business are very different from uh, the experiences of an investor who's responsible for managing the portfolio of a billion dollars. They're just different points of view. And, and, and uh, you know, my unique skill set is, is, you know, effective. I, you know, I get to bridge that gap. Uh, I could talk to both uh, both groups and translate for the other ones, which makes it a lot of fun.
1: No, that's good. Yeah. That's a, that's a great skill to have. A great skill. Um, so growing up in the, in the collision business, you've kind of seen what the collision business is and where the car wash business is today. What are some of the similarities that you see in those industries as far as, you know, obviously they're in the automotive aftermarket space, but what are some things that you see that are similar? What are some things you might see that are different about those, those businesses?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think that the, the first thing I noticed is what we've already been talking about this, this theme of entrepreneurship of small business, of of fragmentation, you know, we we talk about industries as being fragmented, which is, you know, having a lot of, of smaller operators in, in both those, both uh, car washing and collision are very similar in that nature. And, and as I uh, got to, to, Understand the car wash industry better over time. I I I realize how similar the the ethos are uh, among uh, members who have have found founded businesses in both industries. uh, How how fragmented uh, both industries are. Uh, But as I dug deeper into the industry, what I found uh, I think even more interesting, almost to the to the point of of being startling, was that uh, uh, both industries. Uh, have gone through uh, a, a fair amount of consolidation, uh, car washes much earlier in that process than, than collision is. But what I found really interesting was that the investors, the private equity investors that are financing the consolidation uh, are, they're the same companies uh, in some cases that have financed the consolidation and collision. So oftentimes I say that, um, uh, uh, what we see in car washes is what collision was 20 years ago. So, you know, sometimes I look at the industry and go, wow, like I, I can. history doesn't repeat, but it often rhymes. And so I can, you know, I could see, and I, and I understand what the thought process of the investors are behind, uh, how they plan to grow in the industry, how they plan to, to take market share in it. And. And likely, what some of the the changes are that that we expect to see in the industry. So uh, it, it's, it, I think you know probably the, the biggest surprise for me though was that uh, it wasn't just the fact that there was private equity involved in the industry, which is private equity involved in every industry. Uh, it's that some of the same players that I have watched very closely in, in, in collision uh, are doing the exact same things in, in, in car wash today
1: yeah interesting you know we there's been you know, over the last two or three decades there's been three or four major plays of private equity trying to get in the car wash business and for whatever reason they were not successful in this last kind of push we've seen in the last three to five years, I think we're starting to see some momentum start picking up in the in the uh car wash industry of private money private equity money coming in. do you want to get just give a quick definition of what private equity money is? Give us what the state of private equity is today? I know, uh, you know, there's just, it's just, there's a lot of industries right now that are being transformed by private equity. But for people who are not familiar with that, can you just give a quick thumbnail on what private equity is?
0: Yeah, so so private equity is, you know, th- these are investment groups and, and they're professional asset managers. And so what that means is that 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 you know, on Wall Street, if you if you imagine uh, folks on Wall Street, there's folks that that trade stocks and there's folks that trade bonds. Uh, and and they they manage different assets and, and they so they and they collect investors' money and then they they invest that that money into different assets so. Private equity is a, a class of investor, but rather than buying uh, the publicly traded stock or 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 you know investing in government bonds or you know or high yield debt, whatever it may be, they actually invest in privately held businesses. So you know, that's actually where the term private equity comes from. It, you know, it's rather than public equity, it's private equity. Uh, one thing you'll learn about Wall Street is is it's it's not a very imaginative yeah. group of, of folks, so the, <laughs> the descriptions are, are are rather dry. Okay. <laughs> um, but but you know that you know you know that is what what private equity does and and they go out and 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 they raise money. Some of the largest groups, you know, the the, the Carlisles and, and Blackstones of the world and, and Lennon Greens and Rourke's, they they go out and they raise money from, uh, you know, perhaps maybe it's wealthy family uh, family offices. Uh, It's insurance companies. It's endowments. It's 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 university investment trusts. So, uh, you know, all these these sources of capital, they raise money and 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 in return for receiving commitments from their limited partners, they go out and they invest it into into different businesses. Uh, so the private equity, uh, industry, uh, a large industry, it's a, it's a very well connected industry, uh, obviously very influential on, on a lot of different, different ways. Um, and, and they, you know, they're, they're, they're really, their, their, their goal is to, to generate returns in excess of what would be generated in, in the public marketplace. So they're, um, and, and you know, they just, you know, they're very powerful, uh, uh organizations lots of resources behind them and and frankly they, they think about business in a very different way than than a typical entrepreneur does and, and and what i mean by that is they you know they really think in terms of of return on capital return on investment whereas generally uh Many entrepreneurs think about business in terms of what's the cash flow it generates, uh, you know, to to me and to you know to the, the founders of the business. Uh, whereas uh, the, the asset manager folks think of, you know, think about it in a more nuanced view about how do we how do we increase the value of this overall asset base. Uh, you know, cash flow is important, but let's you know let's focus on increasing the value of the, of the overall asset base first.
1: Okay, and so there, we're kind of a unique time in the public equity. History, I guess. What's what's happening today that's probably not happened before is you know hasn't happened in a while?
0: Well, you know, there's a lot of what we call dry powder. There's a lot of of, of dry powder in the market. So, you know, dry powder is basically the the cash that an investment manager has on hand and so then that's the cash that a private equity group has sitting on the sidelines waiting to uh waiting to be invested in companies so you know over you know really since 2007 2008 since the you know the um you know the great financial crisis is, as as it's often referred to uh there's been a, a large amount of of liquidity injected by central banks into into the marketplace and that has had an, an impact on all sorts of different asset classes you know at present, we see the stock market at historical highs. We see the bond market at highs. We see real estate at, at historical highs, and the same holds true for valuations of, of privately held businesses. And, you know, generally speaking, uh, we are uh, you know we are at a, a peak uh, when it, in terms of valuation, and a lot of that's driven by the fact there's just a lot of cash out there waiting to be invested. So historically, you know, private equity investors would focus on in the eighties, you know, the heyday of private equity investing, you know, the focus on these mega public equity takeovers where they take them private or or do these these giant mergers and 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 do these you know really large multi-billion dollar deals. And and private equity wasn't really focused on what we call what we define as the lower middle market or the you know the smaller businesses uh, in the country. Uh, but what's happened is as all this money has entered the system, these different private equity groups have been searching for for investments. And in fact, I was having a, a, a meeting with, uh, with one fund manager recently, uh, and you know, he's got a billion dollars of, of, of assets he's responsible for. And I said, well, you know, how's business? And he says, well, you know what? It's, it's actually, it's really hard to put money to work in today's environment." And I, I found that refreshing, one because he was being very transparent and very honest. Mm-hmm. But but two, interesting in the fact that that for many fund managers out there, raising money is not the challenge in today's environment. Rather, finding appropriate investments and finding appropriate companies in which to invest uh, is is the greater challenge. So you know that's the first trend. The, the second trend, though, is, and I could get on my soapbox for this for a long time. Um, but you know, really what we've what we're seeing happen in this country is, is a, a a generational shift in 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 wealth. And what I mean by that is as the quote unquote baby boomer generation begins to retire, many in this generation uh, are owners of small privately held businesses. And there's this this unique thing that's happening in our country, which is that generally speaking, the the younger generation is less inclined to follow in the footsteps of, um, uh, you know, of the the you know, of their parents in terms of, of running a traditional blue collar type of business. Uh, there's there's very much a trend to uh, move towards, you know, you know, more glamorous, you know, whether it be professional jobs or or, or software jobs or or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we see fewer and fewer of the second generation taking over these these blue collar industries, and so th- what's happening is as the baby boomers are beginning to retire, they're looking to to liquidate their uh, their business and turn in, turn their business into, into liquid assets. And so, if you know historically where the you know the second generation would come in and take over and, and pay mom and dad off for a couple of years to to keep you know helping with the business, but you know to get them set in their retirement. Uh, that's not happening. So a, a number of investors have stepped in to fill that gap. And whether it be through their investments in larger platform companies or directly acquiring these companies, uh, they've become the uh, the buyer of choice in the marketplace. So you combine the fact that investors have a lot more cash than they, they historically have had in, in a very long time with the fact that a lot of baby boomers are retiring and looking for liquidity options and exit options. And you, you really have this bit of this perfect storm uh, where you have a lot of money chasing a lot of businesses that are are, are ready to sell, and the you know the big winners in this game uh, are the investors and the businesses that are um, are consolidating the entire industry uh, at the given time.
1: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems like it is kind of that perfect storm right now, where everything's up. I, mean, I don't know. If, you know, I I don't understand finance as well as I should, but it seems like for real estate to be up, for the markets to be up, for bonds to be up, uh, for Business activity to be up for acquisitions to be i mean it's it's a unique time where everything is kind of in a positive pop a note I would assume
0: yeah yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of correlation here uh, and there's not it seems like there's there's nothing that's that's uncorrelated which and we'll, we'll see you know we'll see where that goes uh, you know but again if you use history as a guide uh, there's been uh, some some guides yeah, that, yeah. that might point us to, 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 you know, that we may want to be cautious in, in, in times like these. Um, yeah. But, but I do think that, you know, even though that, that, you know, asset values across the border are at all time high, you know, I, am a, I, I'm a relatively young man and you know, I, I do still see that, you know, this still really is a great time to invest, uh, to grow a business because you know you know take the private equity side out of it for a second and and just look at just the demographic trends and, and the fact that there there are a lot of uh, uh individuals in this country who are you know if they're not already thinking about it they will be thinking about it very soon about you know what is my you know what does my retirement look like and and for younger growth minded operators and and entrepreneurs, you know, there's a, there's a lot of opportunity out there still, you know, so I, you know, I I don't want to make it seem like it's just, you know, it's all Um, one-sided. There's growth. There's still, you know, in in any market, you know, there's still a lot of opportunity for growth. Sure.
1: Sure. Yeah. I agree with that. But this is a new normal. I want to say that, Brad, it's a new normal. I'm actually being funny about that because in 2001, you know, when my investments tanked by 40% or more, you know, everybody talked about the new economy and the new normal, but there, there are cycles, right? And we will see, we will see the equity markets cycle sometime. You know, in the future, we don't know when. But you know, things things always go through cycles. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep, yep, they they always do. And 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 if you listen to the talking heads on CNBC or or Bloomberg, you know they you know that seems to be an increasingly uh, uniform refrain: is that you know, we're long overdue for correction.
1: This episode of The How of Car Washing is sponsored by Diamond Shine. Diamond Shine is the premier car wash chemical manufacturer dedicated to maximizing the profitability and performance of car washes. Efficiently producing clean, dry, and shiny cars nationwide, Diamond Shine helps operators create a top-notch wash experience and satisfied repeat customers. From branding and marketing to on-site problem-solving, Diamond Shine's team delivers results visit diamondshine.com today to learn more from
0: the industry experts.
1: So the the answer to this is probably answers two questions, but what's so attractive about the car wash industry as itself and then why is private equity now so interested in the car wash industry?
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good good question. And and really when you look at the industry front from a macro level, there's there's a couple of key things that I see that make the industry attractive. Uh, you know, the vehicle fleet continues to increase in size. Car ownership can, continues to increase. Miles driven increases. Uh, you know, in 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 today's economic environment, disposable income is is continuing to increase. So, you know, generally speaking, it, it's the the industry has a number of fundamentals that are that are, that are attractive. From a a competitive standpoint, though, within car wash is the role of technology is increasing. Uh, It's also a a rather capital intensive industry, and so uh, as as technology begins to play a larger role and investments in technology uh, play a larger role in the industry, uh, those and and, and in capital, the capital intensity of the industry in general, those create certain barriers to entry that uh, from a strategic standpoint make the industry somewhat attractive as well. And what I mean by that is, is, you know, from an investment standpoint, if you're running a business that that requires a substantial allocation of capital to be disrupted, uh, that prevents, uh, oftentimes, minimizes the chances of an outside uh, entry coming in to disrupt the business. And so there's there's this idea of economies of scale in business. And in um, while car wash, you know, th- there are some legitimate criticisms that it's not a scalable business. You know, really what I look at, I, I see there's a bit of a J curve in terms of, of the economies of scale in car wash, which is, as you're initially building out your platform, there's actually negative scale and it becomes more costly to operate a car wash business. But once you pass a certain threshold, you actually start to see benefits from the from the scale you build and you're actually able to, to rationalize your marginal cost structure. And so um, from an investment standpoint, a strategic standpoint, that's attractive because it, it means that a a kid with an app in Silicon Valley uh, is less likely to disrupt the industry and the cash flows and the leadership position of of a company you've invested in than you know relative to some other industries that are out there. So, you, you know, when you, that's really it's 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 a strategic level. It's a it's a business. You know, it's it's a a macro level. And then when you, when you combine the third factor uh, in here, which is just Car Wash does provide an attractive return on invested capital and, uh, and it is fragmented and there's opportunities to grow both through development of new locations as well as acquisitions. Uh, you know, th- there's a lot of opportunity here for, uh, for folks that have uh, the resources to invest in growth uh, as well as the, the right team uh, facilitating that growth
1: sure yeah yeah I definitely see the the benefit of that you know there's there's this uh, confluence right now between the the consolidators and the guys that have been in the industry a long time the mom and pops versus the corporate guys in in the industry so there's been a lot of talk about that and there's a lot of fear on the part of the you know the single operator you know single tunnel operator the person that owns two or three car washes who's just an investor and maybe run their business versus the corporate guys uh, there's the fear of the corporate guys are going to come in and quote unquote take over the industry, and I want to kind of get your thoughts on that because you might have seen that or seen this process take place in the auto collision market. And is that a is that a is that a fear people should should have, of, uh, or is it something they shouldn't have? Is there room for for both? Um, and then what are some things that if you're a you know a smaller operator, should you be thinking about as these these uh, larger uh, larger corporations might come into your market.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think the the short answer to this is there's there's always room for for well run smaller businesses in the marketplace. While the corporate guys and the investment guys, they will have an impact on the market. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt about that. They they will have an influence, and they they certainly intend to have an influence. But there's there's always room for well-run small businesses. Um, One thing I I would be cautious, though, would be that just because there's room for well-run small businesses, you know, doesn't mean that now's the time to stick uh, your head in the sand and just you know presume that everything's going to be fine. Uh, You know, the reality as is as larger players come into the market, they um, they actually often increased. They increase operating cost for the incumbent players in the market. So, uh, for example, uh, it, it may be more difficult to attract and retain talent in the market uh, as the larger players are more aggressive in recruiting and in hiring uh, different players in the markets. Uh, you know, they may be more aggressive in in recruiting management staff. Uh, they have larger budgets to devote to. Uh, Technology initiatives or marketing initiatives, and so you know they're going to be tough competitors. Uh, and, and oftentimes in the consolidating industry, w- what happens is is the consolidation doesn't take place to, in order to uh, to raise prices. The consolidation actually takes place in order to lower cost. And so the the winners in that environment are the ones who could lower their cost structure uh, in a in a, a a more efficient way than than others uh, industry. Or conversely, uh, are the ones who can actually cause the incumbents in the marketplace to actually have to increase their cost structure to compete. So, I mean, if you think about uh, a large, well-capitalized competitor coming into a market and, and and launching a media blitz and a hiring blitz uh, all at once, uh, you know, the incumbents are going to have to to respond either by discounting prices or uh, trying to you know compete one to one on an advertiser standpoint, or maybe paying people more to retain them. So you know, there's a lot of of, of strategic ways that that a, a new player coming into a market uh, could make life difficult for mm-hmm. for an incumbent player.
1: Sure. Yeah. You, know.
0: um, you know, but you know, the, the reality is that they're not going to. It's it's very it's it's less common to see uh, private equity backed roles completely take over an in industry. Uh, and, and when you look at the data. Uh, depending on the industry and how scalable it, the industry is, you, you might assume maybe the biggest players, the biggest top three or four players might account for 70% of the market. I, I mean, at this point in car wash, the, the largest players account for uh, well less than 10%. So there's, there's still a long way to go before uh, I, I think that uh, even gets, you know, becomes even close to becoming a reality.
1: Yeah, you know, I mean the the big fear I have because I'm I'm not a, you know, I'm a small investor, not a large investor, but if if a large investor does come to my market, that, that their ability, their appetite for risk is a lot different than my appetite for risk. So, if I had a fourth car wash, for example, if that car wash fails or it doesn't do well, I'm having to take care of it and feed it because of of, you know, whatever decision I made, it's much more difficult for me to take on that additional risk sometimes as an individual investor than it would be a corporate I- investor who says, you know what, I'm going to spread my risk out over 20 different units in a geographic market. And some will be su- real successful, some will be okay, but it gives me a- the ability to control a market. Do you have any thoughts Wait, on I mean,
0: that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, and that is very much the the investment thesis uh, uh, uh a significant part of the investment thesis of, of these groups is it's, it's classic portfolio diversification. Uh, and so you're spot on. And, and that holds true, whether you're talking about just from an investment standpoint, uh, in terms of, you know, you only have, you know, your fourth location is 25% of your revenues, versus, uh, you know, this may be uh, less than 1%, you know, in this location, maybe less than 1% for, uh, for the larger group. Uh, but it also holds true from a, a mergers and acquisitions strategy standpoint, which when, when you look at the data, that the companies that are the most successful in terms of, of executing a mergers and acquisition-based growth strategy are the companies that uh, focus on big buying small. And, and what I mean by that is is you know a, a $250 million company uh, Hitting a lot of singles and doubles and buying a, a, a company that has 3 million here and, and 4 million there and, and maybe 15 million there so that any one acquisition is a, a still a relatively small part of their portfolio. And so, you know, those the, the, the companies that get that process right are the ones who who uh, over time generate higher investment returns uh, in, in M&A growth environment. So, but I mean, you're, you're spot on. I mean, the fact is that, that, you know, these companies, because they have a larger capital base, they could allocate capital in a much different way than a, a smaller business can.
1: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's something to be aware of as you kind of, as we go forward, but I, I want to talk a little bit about, the uh, the small business owner as he starts thinking about selling his business. And you probably have, uh, I've seen a lot of these kind of what I call war stories. But what are some classic mistakes that small business owners make when they decide it's time for them to retire and sell their business?
0: You know, I, I think probably the first one is 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 not thinking about it soon enough. It, when when we're working with with folks to uh, you know to when they just start thinking about that process, uh, there's two primary questions that we ask that they're, they're, they're rather simple questions actually, but they're deceptively difficult to answer for many. And, and the first one is, uh, how much, and the second one is how long and, you know, how much, you know, you know, talks about, you know, what's, what's that magic number in your head and, you know, everybody has a magic number, uh, and how long is, you know, how much time do we get there? And, you know, with those two data points, we could pretty much back solve to, uh, what we have to do in order to get there. Um, but what, what I've found is that oftentimes, uh, entrepreneurs either, uh, they're, they hesitant to say a number, uh, you know, they, they feel, you know, maybe somewhat self-conscious, you know, you know, and they self-censor, oh, it's too high. It's too low. What if I'm selling myself short? What if I say a number that, that, that they think is just silly and, 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 um, and, and so that's you know that's that's a tough question to answer sometimes. Uh, you know, I don't want to say a number and then you know sell myself short and and I could have done more. Mm-hmm. But then you know how long I think is uh, uh, even even more difficult question to answer because none of us likes to talk about uh, what uh, you know the, the end point endpoint. Uh, you know, for I, mean, I grew up in a business like this. Uh, you know, my father doesn't want to talk about. Uh, uh, how long he's going to work in the business. I mean, because that is, you know, the business is, is part of him mm-hmm. to a certain extent. Right. It, it's, it's what he's built. Uh, it, I mean, it, it is interwoven with his personal identity. And, and so to, to say how long implies that, that, that business will no longer be there. And, uh, and it opens up a whole range of emotions in terms of, uh, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, people going so as far as to say, well, if I'm not in my business, then I'm just going to die. And I don't I don't want to think about that. So um, but but answering those two questions, you know, you know, really uh, allows uh, um, uh, us as advisors to to get to the heart of, of OK, well, how are we going to get there? Uh, you know, what do we have to do to get there uh, and and build a plan and execute uh, according to that plan? So, you know, and the second one is, you know, I I think it's just, you know, really surrounding yourself with, with folks who have, uh, you know, who've who've gone through the process before and, and who, who understand not only the financial side of it, but the emotional side of it. Uh, and I mean, because the emotional side is probably as important, if not more important than, than the financial side of it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. You know, when I think about the day when I will eventually want to sell, you know, to think about the identity part of it and not being known as a business owner, there's, there's a little bit of, you know, I am a small business owner. That's a nice thing to be able to tell people, but when you're no longer a small business owner, you know, it does, you do get wrapped up quite a bit of your identity. And when you're a small business owner, a lot of your time, you know, a lot of your free time is spent on the business. And so when those two things are gone, it does make it very difficult to try to identify. It is an emotional process. And I would imagine the good business brokers or MA individuals understand that and trying to help their clients through that process?
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's very emotional. Uh, you know, it, it's one of the things I often, uh, you know, try to remind folks is that, uh, that just because you sell your business doesn't mean you're done doing business. And, and, and what I mean by that is that, you know, in, in finance, we call it a liquidity event, and, and and that's that's finance speak for you know selling an asset and turning it into cash. Right. So you know you know this is a liquidity event, and and you convert a very illiquid asset, which is your business, into a very liquid asset, which is cash. Now, oftentimes we we sometimes we forget that there's then next steps after that, and and that cash doesn't just sit there in the bank account. Earning zero interest, presumably, you there's an opportunity to do something else with that cash as well, which is it, which is you know to a certain extent kind of the exciting part because now that cash could become uh, an investment vehicle into a large number of, of different opportunities. Uh, you, you know, it could turn into maybe uh, you know real estate investment cash. It could turn into uh, philanthropy cash. It could turn into to to cashes that's. Uh, directed towards uh, family or, or other entrepreneurial pursuits. So, you know, there, there's other, you know, that cast doesn't just disappear. You know, it, it's something that can continue to be used and, and invested and developed. And, and, uh, and so, you know, you still continue to do business with it. And I think, you know, to your point about being so, you know, the identity being so wrapped up in your business, sometimes we lose sight of that. And, you know, and I get it. I mean, I do it in my business as well. Um, if I'm not doing my business, what am I doing? But, you know, there's, you know, I, I often say, you know, uh, God did not put this on this world, uh, just to, uh, you know, whether it be run a body shop, run a car wash, uh, run a service center, sell parts, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity out there, uh, liquidating the business gives you an opportunity to pursue that different opportunity.
1: Sure. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. So, what's the difference between you know, somebody like you who specializes in mergers and acquisitions and maybe a business broker?
0: Yeah. So, you know, you know, generally speaking, you know, when, when we use the term MA advisor, you know, we, we take uh, a, a very tried and true process that's practiced at the corporate level and, and apply it to low middle market, lower middle market businesses. So, you know, versus in, in for me personally, uh, I have a very specific industry focus. I do a lot of work around automotive. Uh, you know, it's not the only place we're active, but it's it's a place where I do a lot of work. And you know, frankly, because you know, I understand the industry, uh, I, I understand the business model, I understand the folks. I, you know, I, there's a lot of soft skills that I, I I bring to the mix. Uh, versus, you know, a, a business broker tends to sell what what people call main street businesses. Uh, which would be, you know, uh, maybe, you know, retail businesses or restaurant businesses. Uh, you know, kind of think about, you know, a guy who sells a donut shop one day and maybe a dry cleaner uh, and then a restaurant. And it doesn't necessarily have a, um, you know, a particular focus and, and serves businesses that you know, are generally well under $5 million in revenues or less. You know, an m and advisor really steps in from uh, you know our 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 spectrum of companies uh, is is what we call the you know, the middle market to lower middle market, which depending on who you ask, that could be anything from uh, you know ten million to to five hundred million, uh, everything in between. But you know, really, you know, our, probably our strong suit is is in that you know, one hundred fifty million and and below category. Okay. So. Uh, it comes down to the process as well. You know, whereas in a business broker, oftentimes you'll see a, um, a, a, listing of businesses for sale on a business broker's site. Uh, and you know, that's something you'll never see on our website you know, because when, when we're working with a, a seller, what we're actually doing is, is before we even get to the point where we're going to market, we're spending a lot of time with that seller working with their financials, uh. Re, you know, recasting their financials, identifying uh, what we call cost synergies or or or, or synergies that uh, uh, are going to be present for a buyer when they come in. Uh, we, you know, we're going to be identifying intangible benefits uh, and intangible assets for the business, and and really reformulating those financials in a way that that makes the you know, that highlights the benefits of a business to uh, potential acquirers. And then we're going to go out and we're going to reach out to those acquirers. And there's some groups that will go out there and, and, and market a business to hundreds of different folks. Uh, you know, typically speaking, we're not going to do that. Uh, we want to maintain the confidentiality and privacy of the business owner. I mean, this is something that uh, is as personal as is any any decision, uh, you know, personal or business-wise wise out there. And, and so... Generally speaking, you know, unless there's a, a case to be made that by presenting this to 150 different people you're going to substantially increase your valuation, we just don't necessarily understand why uh, we we would go out, you know, why anybody would want to go out and and and, and show their innermost uh, uh, financials and operating metrics to to the entire world. So we take a much more targeted and focused approach uh, uh, and, and and leverage our experience with managing the process to the benefit of the client rather than just, you know, the shotgun approach.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're going to be talking to car wash owners, saying I want to sell, and I want to sell in five years, when, when should you start planning? And then what are the three or four things that you would recommend they do to start preparing for an eventual sale?
0: Yeah. You know, I, you know, start playing right now. Um, you know, let's say it's, let's say it's five years. Let's say, you know, it's when I turn 60 or whatever that, no, that number is. Uh, but, but start planning now and, and, you know, understand what's going on in the market in terms of valuations. Uh, as we talked about earlier, markets ebb and they flow. Uh, right now things are really high. Uh, I don't have a perfect crystal ball you know, it gets cloudy from time mm-hmm. to time, but, uh, I could tell you with certainty, that five years from now will not be the same as what it is right now uh and and so having an educated uh point of view of what that might look like five years from now i think is a uh a very rational and and prudent thing to do i think understanding different scenarios and, and how that may impact your your outcome and and those scenarios may involve uh Ah, uh, different scenarios from a a tax planning perspective, you know, where you get your your CPA involved, who has a picture, has an overall picture of your entire portfolio of assets. Uh, it may be from a business perspective and an investment perspective, uh, where we come in and we we actually will will look at a number of different operating and investment scenarios for a business and how that may impact the ultimate uh, exit and ultimate return uh, of a business. So, uh, you know, maybe we look at a, a scenario where it's. Uh, uh, we look at an owner aggressively reinvesting in their business for the next four years and, and then uh, and then going to market. You know maybe we look at uh, another scenario where uh, a business uh, you know takes its foot off the gas and, and diversifies uh, and then and, and sells in, in, in three or five years. And so you know just understanding what those different scenarios might look like and how the different investments that's required to do each, you know each each scenario, uh, I think that's powerful it's, it's you know, again, understanding the options that are available, available to a business owner, uh, you know, that generally uh, creates, uh, creates value. And, and I think lastly, you know, this is, you know, you hear this from a lot of different folks, but um, if you're not running clean books now, start, understand your numbers and run a clean, organized, uh, financially metric driven business that will pay itself multiple times over. And, and, you know, really what that comes down to is, is what can you do to lower the risk of your business to an outside group? You know, so really start thinking about your business from from an outsider's point of view, which is if I was going to buy my business today, would I be satisfied with what I saw? Would I be comfortable with what I saw? And sometimes it's hard to do that. It's hard to, to get an objective uh, point of view. Uh, you know, when we're looking at our, our, our own baby. Uh, but, you know, that's, you know. Think about it from an outsider's point of view, of of uh, if if somebody else came and bought this business, would they say, "Yeah, that looks really good"? Or would they like, mm, you know what? I'm not sure yeah. about that." Because the more you can reduce your risk, uh, the the more that translates into purchase price uh, for you at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, and I, I think uh, the one thing I hear people talk about is don't use your. Business as your personal checkbook,
0: and uh, you
1: know, keep keep some of those expenses that you would typically make a personal expense out of the business, because it's hard to justify those as you're going in when you're trying to sell a business. Go, no, well, these are personal expenses versus corporate expenses, and then things get muddied, and then the overall integrity of the books tend to suffer after that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I remember the first time I heard it was uh, uh, from a finance professor, and, and he, he had a lot of experience in working with private businesses. And he says, you know, the reality is you need to have three sets of books. You need to have the books you give to your bank, the books you give to the tax, to the tax man, and the books you, you run your business with. And when I first heard that, I thought, oh my gosh, this guy's insane. But then I really started thinking about it. And it's true because, you know, the accounting that you do for tax purposes oftentimes is not is not the exact same accounting you, you're doing for internal management purposes uh, and is often not the same accounting that you're 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 showing to your bank to um, to go out and, and and raise additional capital for growth. And so, you know, understanding that that. Uh, there's multiple ways to manage the finances of a business, so you know it, it's it's important.
1: True, true. Interesting, Inter- interesting uh, observation by that professor. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've, I've only I can, I can only keep one set of books going. I can't figure out how to do two or three sets, so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that. But um, so the team members, if you're gonna think about this, who should you start getting involved? Who should be on your team if you're thinking about selling your business?
0: Well, yeah, I, you know, so, uh, you know, the, the first one is is competent legal counsel uh, who has experience in uh, managing transaction and is, you know, is licensed to practice law in your state. Um, it, the reality is we've seen attorney, we've seen sellers be represented by their sister-in-law who is a divorce attorney and thinks they could uh, are doing the seller a favor. Uh, by uh, by representing the sale of their business but just doesn't have the necessary expertise or experience uh, in in that process so uh, you know cor- you know corporate MA attorneys can be pricey but they're also the ones that uh, that help get deals done so you know that, that's the first one uh, CPA obviously uh, a good CPA who has a, a, a holistic understanding of your of your, of your tax situation. Uh, not just of the business, but all you know all of your assets, your you, your your business your real estate, your personal real estate, your insurance and and any other assets that that you have um, who could provide uh, guidance in, in in that respect. Um, you know, and then, of course, you know, I, I humbly submit that that having a a experienced m and a advisor is one of the best things that that you can do in terms of not, it's not just about maximizing price. And in fact, oftentimes I tell folks that, um, uh, you know, if that's the only reason you, you're looking to, to retain somebody, it's, it's, you, you're probably missing a lot of this, but, uh, you know, r- you know, really what an M&A advisor does is, is, uh, increases the probability of getting the deal closed in a equitable way that ensures that your, uh, your personal risk is is mitigated uh, in that transaction as well, so that 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 you get to not only uh, uh, you get to keep and collect the the money that was agreed to be provided to you uh, at close. So, um, you know, those those are really kind of the three primary uh, advisors that are critical in in any transaction.
1: And then about how much time would you say a transaction would take? I mean, patience is obviously. And there, there are some consolidators telling buyers right now that they can close in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. They can do quick closes. But what, what's more realistic as far as the expectation in terms of time to close?
0: You know, we, we tell folks to plan for, for six to nine months on average uh sometimes it could go a year uh sometimes it could be less but very rarely than that um you know because oftentimes when we get involved we'll want to spend uh two to three months uh sometimes longer sometimes six months just with the management team ownership team preparing for that exit because uh you know there there's when we get involved early, you know, we'll go through, we do what's called, uh, reverse due diligence or seller due diligence where we're asking a lot of the same questions a buyer is going to ask, but before the buyer asks them, because I mean, the reality is that none of us is perfect and there's, there's, there's items that sometimes need to get cleaned up or adjusted or, uh, uh, at least prepared for. We'd rather know that now, uh, and, and react to it now and be prepared for it now than, uh, uh, something to pop up unexpectedly at the eleventh hour of a negotiation and, and derail the, uh, the, the the total transaction. So um, you know, so you, you know, so we want to spend you know at least three months uh, uh, of working with with folks, and a lot of it depends on how how organized the the seller is, uh, uh, how accessible their records are. Uh, you know, not only financial records, but but uh, you know this you know, may include. Uh, you know, on, on the real estate side, on the environmental side, on the, you know, the uh, contracts and documents, you know, whether it's, it's, it's insurance policies or, uh, you know, whatever it may be. So, you know, th- there is a lot of, of checking the boxes that, that goes on in that process. But uh, the more prepared you are before you go to the market, uh, the the more you mitigate your chances of an unexpected surprise at the 11th hour.
1: Sure. It's almost like running for office or, you know, do you have anything in your past history that you would be embarrassed to talk about?
0: So. You know, that's a great analogy. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to steal that. I'm going to start using that. All right. Good. Yeah. For, <laughs> feel free.
1: But yeah, it's exactly the same thing. Let us know now because we don't need a surprise at the closing table to find yep. out there's, you yep. know, exactly. there's a brother-in-law loan that you didn't disclose or something like that. So, mm-hmm. okay, a couple more questions for you, and I'll let you run what What do you think the future of private equity well you, you know, I know your crystal ball isn't quite as clear as you'd like it to be many times, but uh is this train still going down the track with full steam, or do you see anything right now that gives you any indication things are slowing down or
0: uh you, you know it's it's going it's full of steam i I think it's interesting to watch the the tax debates in Congress and if if we do see some limitations to the use uh to the deductibility of interest uh uh that may have an impact on uh not saying on private equity be more valuations. uh that, that could have uh, an impact on, on some bigger deals or more highly leveraged companies um so that'll be interesting to see going forward uh, but generally speaking I, I you know i don't see anything that's going to derail uh you know the, the private equity train there's, there's a, I mean, there's a lot of dry powder out there. Uh, You know, in in my presentation, I I referenced a graph about $1.5 trillion of dry powder globally across the world. So it's just, there's a lot of money looking for investment. And so um, between the fact that you have the baby boomers retiring and a lot of money looking for investment, I just think this is a trend that we are going to continue to see In a lot of different industry sectors right now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the last question I'm going to ask you is more kind of a, you know, it's more of an opinion, but is, is, is everything for sale? Should a business always be for sale um, for a small business? And I know there's that emotional component for small business owners. It could be their life's work, but is it, I mean, you should be rational about the fact it is an asset and it's a performing asset. And sometimes you trade that asset from a, illiquid to a liquid asset. But um, is there is there always a price that no matter what, you know, this is a good time to sell, you need to get out no matter what? Or how do you advise your clients on that?
0: Yeah. You know, I, I think, you know, I, I'd answer it in a somewhat different way that, you know, really we want to take a, an analytical approach to this. And, um, you know, if, that's one of the most common things I hear, right? Is everything's for sale for a price. And, 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 I would actually, uh, I'd push back against that mentality a little bit and, and say, uh, instead that, um, uh, you know, we would recommend that there's a, you know, a critical assessment of what's going on in the marketplace, uh, that, uh, uh I use this term before, but, you know, markets ebb and flow and, and uh, uh, and, and ultimately, what is the, you know, what is the return on your investment that you're looking for? And and depending on where you are, the stage of your life and the risk profile uh, that you have, you're going to have different answers to that. You know, what I mean is, is, for example, a somebody who's 36 years old and has you know, a 35 year runway in front of them may have a very different answer to that question or a very different number. Uh, than somebody who is 60 years old and is looking to to de-risk and and, and monetize uh, in decades of, of hard work, and so you know you know really it's you know we want to and we advise uh, our clients to to take a a, a analytical uh, approach to this and identify you know what are your uh, you know what are your your capital needs at present you know what what sort of risk are you comfortable with and uh, you know, with that, you know, are you comfortable assuming additional operating risk, uh, or does it make sense to effectively de-risk uh, to 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 convert the the risk in your privately held business into cash and invest it in other types of assets that, uh, on a risk-adjusted basis, may be um, you know, may perform as well or, or even better than uh, than the risky operating business. So, um, you know, we, we want to take an you know, analytical approach to it. But, you know, generally speaking, I, I think the, the first way you do that is, is understand what's going on in the market uh, and understand that that, you know, these trends don't last forever. And if, if that's the case, how will you respond? Yeah. Uh, you know, how, how will you react going forward?
1: Yeah. Interesting. A very, very interesting perspective there because, uh, you know, it isn't just, it's not a clear cut decision. And a lot of people, you know, who, who are doing well in the car wash industry and the margins are good and, uh, they're making money. They always think about, well, what, what can I, I can't get another investment where I can make quote unquote, this type of money Mm -hmm. on my invest, my initial investment. So they think about, you know, not, not the whole amount that they borrowed, but the amount they invested, and the returns they're getting on their, you know, cash on cash investment and thinking about, can you do better than that? That's always been a discussion people have struggled with Mm -hmm. um, when when it comes to investing. But again, you know, taking that money and maybe diversifying it for, you know, the times that are not so good, not knowing that, you know, there is a risk. I mean, car washing, there is some risk to it. I mean, it's not terribly risky, but there is future risk to it. And then, deciding to keep it another five or ten years you know you got to factor that risk factor in there of keeping that business versus taking the money off the table and doing something else with it so lots of different things to think about
0: oh yeah I, I could get very wonky uh, in in the time time value of money discussion and and how a million dollars over nine years is not the same as nine million dollars today
1: okay that's a good uh, that's a good that's something we need to do later on. I'm sure Brad has talked about that because that's something I'm probably personally interested in. So, if people want to find out more information about you and the services you're, you offer, where would you send them?
0: Uh, you know, uh, two two ways. Um, uh, the first is my website, which is uh, supp cocom dot uh, com, and I uh, you know I have a, a, a insights section on the website where I put a, a note out every every couple of weeks and, you know, talk about this sort of stuff. And, you know, really what I see going on in, in the automotive aftermarket, what I'm hearing from investors, what I'm hearing from equity analysts and, and, you know, generally my perspective on the industry. Uh, I am, I'm also very active on LinkedIn. So if you're on LinkedIn, uh, I, I tend to, uh, that's my uh, social network of choice. Uh, you know, you know, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. Um, and then, you know, good old fashioned email or, or, or phone. Uh, always happy to have conversations Uh, with uh, folks like yourself, David, or any else in the industry who's just as uh, really passionate about their business. Uh, You know, always, always enjoy doing that.
1: Yeah. Great. Great. This is a great discussion, Brad. I can't thank you enough. I enjoyed hearing you discuss these topics in San Diego and then getting to visit with you again and very insightful, very helpful. And I'm sure our audience is very appreciative of uh, what you've done. So Brad, thank you so much for being on and uh, we'll, uh, we'll maybe take an opportunity to visit again in the future.
0: Thanks, David. Look forward to it.